Hello, and welcome to episode 10 of That 60s Recording Podcast. My name is Joe Montague, and I am your host. Um, today, I've got a really exciting episode. Um, I just can't believe that I got managed to, to speak to, to this chap. His, uh, his name's David Hood, and he is a um, bass player from the legendary Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section, um, who were the house band at Fame Studios and then later went on to own their own studio. Um, and just recorded on um, an unbelievable amount of hits. Um, he is a, a a part of recording royalty, music royalty. He's just an absolute legend. Um, so uh, there's a lot of stuff has been covered in the past. Uh, you know, there's the Muscle Shoals documentary that was on Netflix, um, and obviously David is uh, probably talked about this. I mean, countless times. Um, so be a little bit, um, I suppose, be be mindful that I was trying to be mindful that he he will have talked about this a lot, um, and I tried to keep the conversation fairly natural and explore um, explore particular areas that I was interested in, I suppose, um, rather than um, trying to persistently get um, David to sort of rake over ground that he's done before. You know, if you're interested in. Um, the, the the sort of deep story of the uh, Muscle Shoals thing, and you can go and watch the documentary. And we, you know, we do cover some of that stuff, but um, I su- I guess that does sort of come across in the conversation. Um, uh, and uh, I'm almost excusing it because I I was mindful of that, and I do move on um, fairly quickly if I get the sense that um, it's not something that we should be uh, dwelling on. I guess is the right way to put it. Um, but uh, either way. He's just a super sweet chap. I was a it was an honour to speak to him, um, and uh, I really really hope that you find this conversation interesting. So here he is, David Hood. So I'm really pleased to uh, have here on Facetime with me um, David Hood, who is uh, a member of the uh, famous Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section. So thank you very much for um, coming on to chat with me today, David. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, so I thought we'd start with uh, sort of the link between between us. Um, is uh, a chap, a drummer from the UK here called Ralph Salmons, who I'm sure a lot of the the people based in the UK here will have heard of. Um, and Ralph plays drums for the Waterboys, and you nice. toured with the Waterboys for a couple of years. Um, is that right? Yes, yes. So uh, how, we, how... we um, that's when I met Ralph. Uh, I didn't know it was the Waterboys. Uh, I've worked with a, a lady uh, who I met through Dan Penn, who's a great songwriter. Uh, here uh, and she contacted me and said, asked if I would come and record in Nashville with this songwriter. And it turned out to be Mike Scott. And uh, I, it was loading my stuff in that day at the, at the studio. Uh, Ralph came and helped me carry my stuff in. And uh, <laughs> I, I was late because it, it very rare, but we had some snow and ice. And so it was made me late getting to the recording session. Uh, and uh, Ralph knew who I was and, and uh, or knew of my work. And so he uh, was real happy that I was working with him and, uh, and, and the Water Boys, as it turned out. I thought it was just going to be a solo album with uh, Mike. But it turned out to be the Water Boys. I, got, I met uh, Steve Wickham uh, at the hotel that next day and uh, really enjoyed working with them. Mike Scott is a very, very talented 
singer, songwriter, guitar player, and uh, uh, really he's underrated, I think. He's, his guitar playing is, is really fantastic for rock and roll. Of course, Ralph, uh, Ralph and I hit it off immediately. I can imagine that uh, your both your playing styles complement each other massively. And the only reason I stopped working with the Waterboys, though they might have been ready for me to leave, but I fell. I was in the hotel in Norway and fell uh, in the hotel room and broke my left wrist. Huh. And uh, so I had to—I couldn't play for three months. Couldn't play at all for three months, and it. It hurts right now. <laughs> I didn't know that because I've um yeah I came I've been to see uh Ralph always gets me into the shows when when he comes and tours in the north where I'm from um which I'm very grateful for so I've seen you play with them a couple of times and uh, really yeah and then, and then I did wonder I I just assumed you were busy and that you were you didn't have the time for it. No, I I, I was enjoying it. I've I've been a studio player most of my career. I didn't never have done a lot of live playing once I started uh, working uh, in the studio, and uh, so it looked to me when I, when after we did cut the album with the Waterboys, Modern Blues album, uh, they asked if if I would be interested in touring with them, and I thought it meant like once or twice, you know, one or two shows, and that was it. But it turned into about two and a half years. And I really enjoyed it. It was a great break. And I think I was 72 years old at the time. So I was an older guy than the rest of the group. But I thought, well, if I'm ever going to do any touring, like actual touring, better do it now. <laughs> I'm now 76. I'll be 77 next month, uh, or two months. And uh, I think it would be really hard now for me to tour and be gone like that. And it's not even there now. Well, Ralph mentioned um, when I was chatting to him about the the Waterboys tours that you get looked after quite well. So I imagine it was quite a nice tour to be part of. Yeah, it was. Uh, and and I'd only only toured. I toured with Traffic in nineteen seventy two and seventy three, and you talk about being well taken care of. That was really well taken care of on that. Then I did a uh, a blues tour. And uh, 93, like I wait, do it every 20 years. Uh, <laughs> and so I did a blues tour of Europe in 93. And I thought, Mo, I don't want to do this anymore. And so it was another 20 years before I did it again. Um, so yeah. is it, are you still mostly working in studios now or are you, are you doing some live work? Yes. There's, uh, unfortunately, there's not very much work now because of the pandemic. But yes, yeah. Uh, I, I did a, a session last week, and I did a session about two weeks before that, and uh, we were going to me and the keyboard player I work with quite a bit made a an agreement that we were going to mask, wear a mask, and be very, very careful when we go in there. And it's about five seventeen, eighteen year old guys in a band, young guys, and they were just all over us. Uh, it just did one track, but I thought, if, I don't, if I'm worth it to do this, you know, to risk getting COVID-19, so I don't know how much I'll do. I really need to pick my my sessions better than that one. Yeah, it's a it is certainly a difficult time at the moment. I I am um, 
I'm lucky I've got my place, and then I'm obviously I'm not playing live at the moment because all theatres are closed and everything. So yeah. it's very well, hard. There's, there's just no live, no live music here now. Yeah. Uh, I think there's some in Tennessee. We've got we're about where we live here in Muscle Shoals. We're about 20 miles away from Tennessee, and there's clubs up there that have been live playing. But I don't want to be around a crowd of people. No, no, not at all. I'm in the I'm in the danger zone as far as age goes. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, I uh, I appreciate that you you've um. This is the stuff that you will have covered, but I wondered if we could go right back to sort of the beginning and and track sure. your your career. Um. So, can you talk to me about how you got started with the bass in general? Well, I I had a friend who had a, a guitar, and I was trying to learn how to play the guitar and wanted to start a band, so I thought, well, I'll buy a bass. happened that his father was, um, his father worked a regular job during the day, but in the evenings, he, he repaired radios and TV. So we printed up some stationery, said Hamby's radio TV service, and sent it to uh, Fender, and we ordered, he ordered a, a new Fender jack. Master and I ordered a 1961 Fender Jazz Bass. Lovely. Yeah, my friend got the Jazz Master and I got the bass. We decided since he was a better player, I would play the bass. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's how I started. And we had a we started a little band playing frat parties and and small school dances and things for about four years. Um. Anyway. Same recording studio in our town. And our band recorded uh, a, a single uh, thing, and I got to know Rick Hall, the producer and owner of the studio. And so when he would have little low-budget jobs, he would hire me to come play bass. I just, it just started like that. Um, my first union-scale recording session with Percy Sledge, uh, it was the follow-up to When a Man Loves a Woman, uh, warm and tender love by Percy Sledge. That was my first real in scale recording session. Wow! And uh, it happened to be a gold record. <laughs> so when you when you have when you have a gold record, people start calling. So I started. I had to learn very quickly how to play the bass. And I, I wanted. I wanted. I've been playing four years at that time, uh, four or five years, but I really had to get serious about playing original stuff and not things I was just copying. And uh, so that I had to learn very quickly. I'm still learning. <laughs> I am. Um, I think that, uh, I mean, as a side note, I think that's a, an, a, an attitude that all of the, the best players that I know all have that exact attitude. So uh, I'm, I'm certainly not surprised to hear it from you. Yeah. It, uh, Got me working at Fame Recording Studio and at and the studio that Percy recorded at, uh, with the what became the Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section. Um, first Spooner Oldham, but then Barry Beckett on keys, Jimmy Johnson on rhythm and guitar, and an assortment of a lot of different guitar players. Uh, Eddie Hinton was our first guitar player when we started our own studio, but we worked with uh, Pete Carr who. Passed away just in the last year. He was the guitar player on uh, Main Street with Bob Seeger. Worked with a lot of different guitar players. 
Um, so what uh, I'm really interested in in sort of the fact that you got recording with um, Rick Hall very early on. What what do you think that he saw in you as a as a, a sort of a young bass player that had only really been playing four years and um, sort of maybe by your own admission wasn't the most schooled bass player yet? What what did he see yeah. in your playing? Um, maybe he saw me as fertile ground for somebody who would learn. He could train me. I, I don't know. I, I learned a lot with Rick, and a lot of it. Rick was not the easiest person to work for. He is especially at the beginning, because it was mono first. He made a mistake. Had to go back and do the whole thing again, the whole <laughs> band. So he he was brutal in uh, calling you out for mistakes. So I learned quickly not to make any very many mistakes. Uh, Tell Mama by Etta James is one of the first early recordings I did with him. That was 1967, I think. And there's a mistake in it. Not really my mistake. It was just a mistake. We we go too long on the first verse before we go to the chorus. So that means you have to do it again the next time. And every time I played it since then, we all have to play that mistake. <laughs> it's um i i literally just listened to that song um before we got on the phone with each other so it's funny you bring that up yeah. <laughs> um so uh, what were you kind of 18 around that time late teens well no i was 22 23 okay i'm i'm like i said 76 now so were you working with the mystics at that time as well no one of the mystics last show night before my recording session with Percy Sledge. Okay. That was, that was May 15th, 1906. And uh, that's when my first real sure-enough recording session was. And uh, that was the last show that I played with the Mystics. <laughs> that was, they got all the other guys graduated college and they go on to real jobs. <laughs> <laughs> So it kind of dovetailed quite nicely into into right, sort of, it did yeah. Um, so then, from that first session, was it uh, fairly regular sessions after that, or did it take a little yeah, while to build it up? It's amazing. I've got all my books, uh, my daily diaries. I have them all. What I nineteen sixty-two or sixty-three. The first ones are just calendars I have hanging on the wall that I write dates on, but uh. I've kept all my diaries. Wow. Work diaries. And I, I'm, I was working every week, sometimes several times a week. It wasn't a lot of money at first. Later, got to be a pretty good good living. Because as I said, I was married and had uh, a son and then later a daughter. Uh, so I had, to, I had to make a living. I had to make money. Was that um, the fact that you were married with children part of your decision to uh, to st- stay with the studio work without going off yes. on the road? Yes. Yeah. Um, how would the would a typical session? So we're talking um, the the early part. This is at Fame Studios, isn't it? So we're not not quite well. Yet. Yeah, Fame Studio and Ken Ivey Studio where first you guys recorded. And they're in here, and a couple shows. One of them, Fame, still here. And uh, in 1969, Rick 
wanted to sign the rhythm section to an exclusive contract where we work his sessions and nobody else's. And by that time, I was working with all kinds of different people, and I didn't want to work with just one uh, for him. And uh, so that's when we made the decision that we were going to buy a studio. And it so happened that there was a studio in town available for us to buy and renovate, and that became Muscle Shoals Sound. So, and you came to that decision collectively, all you know, sort of all together. Yeah, yeah. We 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 knew we were a rhythm section. Enjoyed working with each other and had a following of clients and things. And so we thought, well, look. And at that time, we were working with Gary Wexler at Atlantic Records uh, through Wilson Pickett and Aretha Franklin and different Atlantic artists and. Uh, Wexler told us that if we bought the studio, he would start bringing all his work to us. So that really kicked things off. And, uh, and it's what's wild is the first artist that he brought to us was Cher. Oh. And uh, yeah, without Sonny. Sonny came, but it was a, her, her first effort as a solo artist. And, and uh, there's a famous the album cover is a picture of everybody standing out front of our studio with Sonny and Cher and Wexler and all these people. Yeah. And since that photo was taken, there must have been hundreds of photos taken in front of that studio <laughs> of the different people we worked with. But that was the very first. Oh, cool. We cut the, the about two weeks after that, or three or four weeks after that, we recorded with Boss Skaggs, which has the famous Lone Me A Dime with Dwayne Allman playing that everybody listens to. Did um, when when you broke away, did it feel like a big, um, like a huge change, or what? Did it feel like a natural progression? Uh, it was it was it was really scary because, to my knowledge, there's not ever been a rhythm section that owned the studio, and so we were not only expected to make great great records, we were expected to pay the bills and uh, be able to pay our mortgage payments and. The whole bit, and it was it was scary at first. We didn't know whether or not we would have any work, but luckily we did, uh, thanks to Jerry Wexler, and then later on, Al Bell at Stacks and some other. Was it your relationship with Jerry that uh, sort of gave you guys the confidence to to break away like that? If you hadn't had that relationship with Atlantic, then maybe it wouldn't have happened. Well, it helped. Yeah, we uh, we went to New York uh, when we got the chance to buy this studio. It was a little four-track studio in town that a, a fella had built for his son. Turned out that he, they weren't doing any good with it. And so uh, we, we bought it, but we went to New York and talked to Wexler, and Wexler said he would help he'd bring us some work and also would lend us some money, which we had to pay back with studio time, you know, some of our works. So we worked really cheaply for... for for the first, uh, you know, it, it was it wasn't a wasn't a great deal for us, but it got a start. <laughs> yeah. Um, then, um, I'm interested in how you balanced sort of the business side of it with the playing side of it. Was it? Did you sort of assign well, roles or? Uh, we we did. Uh, I was the one who booked the studio. Uh, Barry, keyboard player, he 
make chord charts at the beginning of every session. That was the thing that really attributed to our success is we, when we were learning it be, you know, it'd be new songs every day. And so Barry would write out chord charts and then we had a copy machine. We could copy it. So everybody was going from the same chart. And that we got really quick and good because, you know, people, the more time you spend, the more it costs. So the people who are coming to the studio. So we got where we could knock out a track an hour easily. And uh, so that was part of it. And Jimmy, Jimmy Johnson uh, had experience running a publishing company. And so he was sort of the head of the studio and helped us get our studio, I mean, our publishing, sorry. So we all had different roles. How uh, how did a typical session work? So did did a, an artist come down earlier and... and or did did an artist have a, a producer that knew the track first and then the chord charts it were was, written? A producer would usually, or sometimes with and sometimes without them, the artist, but anyway, they would have the, the songs picked, a lot of them, but that was, uh, and and they would bring them, and we would, that would be the first time we'd hear them was the day of the session. And uh, the thing that built our publishing company is we would know every week or these people would come record they never had enough songs so we had songwriters that we had hired for our publishing company would say well write a song for such and such artists and they would they'd write songs for these people and so they would every session would get a song or two recorded by these artists and uh so that helped us get our publishing company started and that's where the the money is in recording is in publishing that's that, that's really interesting that that's um i i love the the idea that uh you guys sort of rose above just just sort of being players and really yeah. had, had the nous of the business sense to to do this stuff yeah and we co-produced uh at first without any compensation we co-produced everything with all the people we worked with later on we started saying look we want a production royalty for doing these things and so we did that with Bob Seeger and a few other artists, and I still get royalties with Bob Seeger. Thirty years later, <laughs> forty years later, you know, that's wonderful. And, and usually, it was just a handshake deal. I I know, I mean, I, I know it in musicians in sort of my peer group and and lots of people I've worked with. A, a lot of players don't have the foresight that that foresight you know to to play the, yeah. the long-term game they're all they're just you know they want a quick buck now uh, rather than doing the right playing the long right. game uh, and we always when we had our rhythm section going in our studios we always filed union contracts which a lot of guys don't want to mess with you know it's extra trouble and, and but we were we were working with like i said atlantic records and stacks records and Columbia and all these record labels, and they were used to working with union musicians anyway, and so we always insisted that we had a contract, and that's that really paid off. And it was our, our, I want to call it our team. The four of us together stuck to these rules and 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 looked out for each other, and that was a, one of our strengths. Could you? Um, just explain how the union side of things works um, for for the listeners that are in the UK, because I, I mean I'm not clear on how it works in in the US. Well, it's 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 really strange now. There, there's 
haven't worked a union session probably maybe one or two this year. Hmm. Uh, most people want to come in, pay cash, get in, get out, and not do it. But it, at one time, uh, the, the, re the record labels all required that there be union session. And uh, that's no longer the case. But at one time, big, the major labels like Atlantic or or um, Columbia or Saks, they wanted them to be union sessions, and so we did. What was the... And, and what it is, it's a three-hour recording session. But I don't know what the exact, you know, it might be $500 or something for the three-hour session. And there was really weren't expected to do any one number of songs, but usually we would get three or four songs in that three-hour session. And, uh, you know, it's a step fee, and there's also part of that money, there's part of the money that goes to a pension fund. So now, at 76 years old, I'm collecting a pension that I paid into starting when I was 24 years old. Wow. And that's a that's a wonderful thing. It's a, I mean, to be my age, I, that's the only retirement I have, that and the, what they call Social Security. Uh, that's a, that's that is unbelievable. I, yeah, I, it, 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 it is unbelievable, and not very musicians uh, are privileged to do that. But we, by sticking together and saying we're not going to work unless we do a session, file a contract, and it took the four of us to have the strength to do that. So it works for both ways because it means that you guys get the you get the 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 pension and the contract, and the label gets. Uh, sort of a group of efficient efficient yeah, players yeah. who can who could probably turn out more tracks than than the the at three the, hours is worth yeah and at, and in the fine time of our rhythm section we were a producer's dream because we could they would come in with an artist it didn't matter what artist with songs we'd never heard and they would leave with an album or, or whatever they were trying to do they would leave and it would be really good they weren't all hits, but they were all well done. Were Were you guys? Uh, were you hanging out together? Were you mates outside of the business, or how how did your relationships work? Not, not a whole lot because we were we were really working. We were working so much, we really didn't hang out with each other that, that much. We did some, but not a lot. Were you working we, most days? Yeah, yeah. Like uh, would. Uh, Start on Monday and do an album. People would leave Friday with an with, with an album. <laughs> <laughs> That's a. I mean, I I love me personally. I love that the kind of. Um, the early, I, the the thing that springs to my mind is early Beatles records, where they went would go in and just cut an album in a day. And I yeah, I think music, especially when you're playing with players of of your caliber, the the music is. Uh, benefits massively from from doing things fast and making quick decisions. Yeah, yeah, and we got we got to be really versatile in the different kinds of things we would do. I mean, I'm not really a jazzer. I'm not really a country player or anything. But I had to learn different things. We got to be we we wouldn't tell somebody we couldn't do something. We would say we could do it, and then we'd, <laughs> we'd try to do it, and it would. It worked most of the time. <laughs> so, 
it, would you would you be going back and listening to reference records to try and get some ideas on on what's sometimes, playing? Sometimes, sometimes, and when we worked with Paul Simon, we he had booked uh, three or four days at our studio. Uh, he booked the studio for one song. The song was "Take Me to the Mardi Gras," which is on "There Goes Rhyming Simon" album. And so the the day before we he came, we got in somebody's car, I can't remember now, and rode around and listened to earlier Paul Simon stuff and Simon and Garfunkel stuff. And kind of to put that in our heads. And uh, he came in and we could take me to the Mardi Gras. We got it on the second take. And he had four days booked. And so that's when he said, well, let's do Kodachrome. Let's do the, all these other songs that went into that album. Uh, he was not really expect. He was never used to working... I'm sorry if somebody's trying to. <laughs> That's all right. There we go. I got rid of it. Uh, he usually would book the studio time for one song, and we we cut half an album with him uh, <laughs> on those on those days, and he was thrilled to death. And it was a our studio was a funky little place. Uh, the day that he first came, it was raining, and so it was water was leaking in the studio. We had, we had buckets everywhere to catch the water. Amazing. What well, uh, were you? I mean, presumably everything was was cost conscious, but you were like must have been very confident in in what you could produce for these people to have them come to to a place that was well leaking water. <laughs> yeah, I think we. Uh, I, I don't know. We were confident, but we were we were not cocky. I don't think. Uh, Roger is a brilliant drummer, was a brilliant drummer. He no longer plays now, but he was the, really the backbone of the of the group. If you don't have a good drummer, what are you going to do? You, you can't. You can fix a lot of things, but you can't fix a bad drummer. <laughs> and uh, and Barry was such a talented and keyboard player. Uh, it was a, it was a combination. It was hard, hard to lose. It's uh, are you are you guys all still in touch now? You you speak really fondly well, of them all. Barry passed away probably ten years ago. And Jimmy uh, died this past year. Oh, okay. And and then Roger has got some health problems, and so he no longer plays. But we talk regularly. I, and I work with a lot of other people. Days, I'm 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 like ten to twenty years older than most of them now. But, <laughs> And like I said the other day, I worked with Tina, uh, which is not uncommon, I guess. But I enjoy working. Whenever there's the work, I, I think the thing that I've always enjoyed the most was the learning a new song and seeing what I could do with it. And then, then the next song, and then the next song, then the next song. I would hate to be in a band where I only played the same songs all the time. And that would have probably ended my a situation with the Water Boys because we were doing the Water Boys music, but that was it. Mm -hmm. Every now and then, Mike would throw in a, a some weird thing, and that was I, I enjoyed that. But uh, I don't think I'd like to be in a group where I only played one group songs. I like to play the different stuff. Do you um, find that you're uh, when you're going into work on on tracks now? Um, how do they compare in terms of challenging your um, 
you, you're talking about like wanting to play different stuff. So if you if you go in, yeah, you know, when you were right. when you were younger, you might have been challenged because you hadn't had the experience. But now you're obviously much more experienced. Are you still challenged in the same way? Yeah, one one now, age is creeping up on me. I've got arthritis in my hand. I haven't broken my left wrist. Added to that, but I've had three shoulder surgeries. Need your shoulders, you know, when you play uh, bass or anything. Uh, so I've had some physical problems that make it. I, I can't do all the stuff I could do when I was fifty. <laughs> but do you? Uh, but I, I still enjoy the challenge of new stuff. Yeah, you coming up with parts and and that kind of thing. And and the, another thing that's changed is the the business itself. At one time, there were all these people record albums and record labels put up the money for them to record and things like that. That's very rare now. But the record business is all turned around. The artists don't get paid. They have to go out and tour and get their money from live shows. And that's what's killing everybody now because they can't do any live shows. Well, yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, were you guys, when, as as the Muscle Shoals Rhythm section, were you asked to go out on tour with artists? Occasionally, we went out. We did. We we did the thing with traffic. Was at first was just Roger and I. Okay. And then the next, uh, Jimmy went and did the front of house sound, because he was a field engineer, sound engineer as well as guitar player. And then the, the second year, Barry went and played with us. Nineteen seventy three. Uh, we did a few shows with Art Garfunkel, uh, with the Buffalo Philharmonic Orchestra. Wow. Where we played in Buffalo and the, the orchestra was playing and then we rose up out of the floor in front of the orchestra and played. And that was, uh, with Michael Tilson Thomas, who's now the director of the, uh, San Francisco Symphony Orchestra, I think. Uh. I've gotten to do a lot of exciting things, but most of it has been in the studio. Uh, Would you? And that, that suits me. Yeah, that was that was going to be my next question. Would you say that you're happiest in the studio? You you prefer I that? I would to say the... that. Yes. Yeah. I was always with the waterboards, and by that time, I've been playing for fifty years. Uh, still, always a little nervous for the show because I think I was always used to having my chord chart in front of me and stuff like. Uh, after a while with the water boys, he said, well, we don't want to have charts on the stage anymore. Mike Scott was a little bit of a di dictator. Of course, he's the head of the band. But, uh, <laughs> after a while, he's the only one I don't really miss in the water boys. <laughs> I, I, I miss Ralph and I miss Steve and, you know, I, I miss them. But Mike would be a little bit difficult at times. I'd and heard... That, uh, Sorry, I, I was going to say I I have heard, I heard from Ralph is extremely diplomatic, and I had heard from Ralph that um, that Mike can be uh, uh, challenging at times. Yeah, I mean, I, he he would be he would really be all over Ralph sometimes, and I was like, well, what? I couldn't really understand what he was hearing that, that Ralph wasn't giving him sometimes. Uh, some of the uh, I think on the Modern Blues album, there's two tracks. Uh, Mike used the Nashville drummer on, and I thought, well, what Ralph played was playing was great. So, has his own idea. Yeah, um, yeah, it's it's it, it's very interesting. It's it's really tricky. I mean, I I loves Ralph playing Ralph's playing, and it, it, it 
surprises me to hear that somebody could you know that somebody could not see have ralph nail something yeah. you know and ralph is a very disciplined and skilled player and and and, and knowledgeable you know he's he's educated uh, absolutely yeah um how, how do you find um recording now the sessions that you're doing now in comparison to to what you were doing pre um so i'm, I'm thinking mainly in like the tape era versus now i mean presumably now you're yeah. playing, playing to clicks and and yeah. doing stuff isolated I hey what i don't really like working playing to tape as you say we had to learn this we had to learn the whole song and get it as a performance and there was no going back fixing pro tools i'd pro tools is great Cool for a producer, but it's not. A, it doesn't help a musician. It, it's uh, that would say, "Oh, we'll, we'll fix that." I hate that. I want to get it right. And so there's very few sessions now where we really get things as good as I'd like to get them. That's, it's interesting to hear you say that. I, I um, there's a few uh, a few guys I've spoken to. I mean, namely uh, Ken Scott, who produced some Beatles stuff and the Bowie uh, Bowie things, said exactly the same thing. Um, you know, it, it's it's sort of made musicians the yeah i think uh, ken lived in nashville for a few years and he's saying the mm -hmm. the quality of player has gone down because they can they it think has. well just fix it in the mix yes. yeah i hate that i hate it when they say that i worked with one guy who is really really a producer and, and a songwriter he's really really talented with pro tools so you'll go in and start working on the song and he'll make a track out of just what you've done running down the song. And I, I, I hate that. I want to learn the song and get it all the way through like a performance. And that's not happening as much. No, um, it's something, I mean, I, me personally, it's something I strive for in, in guys I, I work with is I, I love to have a full take without any edits. And um, what, what yeah. do you think uh, is... Do you think it's something missing in, in musicians' training now, or do you think it li is literally just down to the attitude in the studio and what they're familiar with? It's, I don't know. That's hard for me to say, but it, I, I realize what a great tool Pro Tools and that kind of stuff is. But it, it's shortcut, so it keeps you... You don't, you, can't, you don't have to be as good a musician. And uh, I, I, I regret that. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. I also wonder whether things like, um, you know, when you were back playing in your first covers bands, I know a lot of um, musicians growing up through the 60s played in, you know, beat bands playing for hours a night and learning lots yeah. and lots of songs. Right. We, uh, well, the Mystics was my first band, and uh, that was with the guy that bought the Jazzmaster. <laughs> he, later, he later bought a uh, Ted Atkins country gentleman guitar because George Harrison had one. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, uh, he no longer, he became a school teacher. He no longer played. Nobody yeah. I started out with. Oh, right. Um, uh, but we did, we learned a lot of songs, the Mystics did. But as soon as I started recording, that was out the window. I was going to the studio, yeah. every, not every day, but every week anyway, and working one or two days a week, sometimes seven days a week and uh that kept you from going out and learning all these other songs and uh, sometimes i would go to a club or somewhere and they'll say they'd play a song band would be playing a song and they say well come up and play on it 
I said, well, I don't really know it. And they said, well, you played the, you played the record. I said, yeah, yeah, but that was a year ago. I don't, I've moved on. I've, I've learned 200 more songs since then. You were playing on the, the hits for the next year. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. You were the, uh, properly on the front line. Go, going yep. back to what you were saying a second ago, I think that uh, one of the the best pieces of advice that I've I've been given through uh, you know up, up until now is uh, about musicians are the the ones who make it are the ones that hold on the longest. Yeah, well, I, I think it's quite true. Uh, I don't know how to do anything else really. <laughs> I'm a, and now that I'm not able to work very much because of COVID nineteen, I'm growing tomatoes. Wow. Walking my dogs every morning, and I've, I've got more of a regular life than I had, uh, and I guess that's good in some ways. And I don't, I don't really. There's some ways I don't really want to go back. <laughs> I'm, I, maybe I'm ready for retirement. I don't know. I'd like. I still enjoy playing, but it's getting harder for me to play because of just physical issues. And uh, and like I said, I'm I'm playing more and more with people who are. 20 years younger than me and they look at me as grandpa or something. <laughs> I I know that this this particular time is is pretty unprecedented, but you must have have experienced quiet times before, so it must you you know, must be a feeling that you're you you're used to maybe not used to dealing with, but you've had it before because it's it's yeah. certainly a feeling that us musicians do struggle with. Yeah, and and it, I tell my wife uh, occasionally I don't have anything booked for the rest of my life. Would be true that I'd have nothing on my book. Uh, but this is the first time that it's really been like it, what it is now, because nobody's doing anything. Yeah, uh, just terrible. And I hope it, I hope they get a something to fix this disease. It's a. I think. I mean, I heard that Oxford University here in the UK has just come up with right. a vaccine. So I've been reading that. Yeah, hopefully we're not too far off. Yeah, it's gonna kill. It's gonna kill a lot of businesses, like restaurants, clubs. I I worked the guy that was the road manager for the Water Boys is, is a man named Nick Robinson, lives in Manchester, and uh, sent a picture of an air the inside of an airplane. Everybody shoulder to shoulder with mask on, and then the picture underneath it was an empty auditorium an empty theater and he said what tell me what 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 this is all about and uh so something's got to happen absolutely i mean i uh i'm not one for for sort of negativity or like having a chip on my shoulder but i really do believe that the arts is underappreciated by by sort of government oh yeah yeah we're, we're lucky to have benefactors every every so often and whether they're record labels or just with money or what we, we need we need that extra help every now and then absolutely and there, there would be times when i'd have nothing on my book nothing planned but then something would always come up yeah i guess it's just a case of holding your nerve yeah and so you have to uh just try not spend everything you have <laughs> <laughs> um uh, i'm i'm really conscious of, of taking up a lot of your time so i'll well we'll wrap things up i just wonder it might be a a slight cliche thing, but I I wonder if you could someone of your experience could offer some advice to young musicians um, coming up now. What would you say to them? Well, learn your instrument 
try to get as much experience doing different things and learn your instrument. And, and with me, I had to pick one instrument. I, I like, I love playing guitar. I'd love to be able to play the drums, but I thought time spent learning something else. If I put it all in the bass, maybe I'll be a better bass player. And that's a good thing. And try to play all different kinds of music if you can, because you never know when you might need to play it. Uh, I don't, I've never really turned down work. I've always, whatever, whatever it was, I'd say, yeah, I'll do it. I worked when I was 40, I'm not, sorry, playing with the Water Boys. I got a call from Cheryl Crow. Wow. Wow, Cheryl Crow. And so I had to be late to go in Los Angeles with Water Boys so I could do this Cheryl Crow session. I went with no sleep. I, but I wanted to do it. And then she called me back, so I did another. And on her latest album, I'm on two of the tracks. One of them playing with Joe Walsh. Wow. The other, the other one with Chris Christopherson. So <laughs> you never know. Don't, you know, hang in there. Don't give up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a big Cheryl Crow fan. I, I went to see her there last year. I absolutely yes, adore it. Yes, she's great. She's great. Yeah. And she lives outside of Nashville. She's got a farm. That when we recorded with her, we recorded in her barn, and there were horses downstairs, and the studio was upstairs. That's crazy. She's a talented musician. I mean, she can play the bass, do the guitar, piano. She's really good. Is there anyone that you obviously you've worked with? You've worked with so many people, but is there anyone that you wish that you had could have worked with that you haven't? Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm not even a big Elvis fan, but. Told uh, his, his people contacted our studio about coming and recording with us, and then he died. But uh, it was he heard "I'll Take You There" by the Staple Singers, and he said, "I want to record with those guys." But then he passed away. But I don't know. Um, there are a lot of artists out there that I really like. Uh, I like uh, Spoon. Hear Spoon? I'm not there. No. Yeah, they're from Austin, Texas. Okay. Pretty good. It's it's a it's really one guy, but it's the name of a group, Spoon. Uh like them. There's several young groups that I like. I'll put a I'll, I'll check them out and I'll put a link in the um, the notes for the show so that people can go and um, go and have a listen. Okay. Cool. Um I've, I've lost you. <laughs> oh, sorry. You're, yeah, you're back. Now. I'm back. Um yeah, I'll, so I'll, I'll link it so that people can go and check that out. Um, is there? Well, that, that's it. I I, I don't want to. I I feel like I could just pick your brains and and listen to you chat forever, but I I uh, I, I want to let you go and not take too much of your time. So I really do appreciate you speaking to me. Well, I've I've enjoyed it myself. Yeah. Yeah. Wish you a lot of luck. Thank you very much. It's a. I I always say it, but it it's a real pleasure that that um, people of your, your stature and your history want to come and speak to me because I think it's really important to to hear what you have to say. Well, uh, I'll maybe finish this off. Uh, Rolling Stone magazine had a, a pick the top 50 bass players. And, and I guess, and uh, I'm right before Family Man Barrett. Played with Bob Marley and the Whalers. Always favorite bass player of mine. But they have in that in that it was it was not even in the magazine. It was online, and then with with that 
where they're saying I'm number 27. They have a picture of me, but I must have been 27 when the picture was taken. <laughs> and I think, well, they I, maybe I was number 27 when that picture was made. I no longer would be number 27. I don't think. So many great bass players. <laughs> I'm I'm sure that's not the case. <laughs> Well, I've enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, absolutely. And, Thank you very hey, much, David. And stay in touch. Talk anytime you like. Oh, brilliant. I appreciate that. There we are. David Hood. What an amazing guy. Um, and uh, as usual, I, I hope that you enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Um, I It was a, a real joy to speak to him. Um, I forgot to mention at the beginning introduction that uh, the sound quality was a, a little bit dodgy. I mean, often... So I'm, you know, I'm calling from uh, the UK uh, and trying to get hold of um, some, you know, often these guys who are over in America um, and everybody's got different ways of working. So FaceTime, um, FaceTime's always nice because I get to see the see the uh, the person I'm speaking to. Um, but sometimes the signal dips in and out. And if you uh, if you're trying to just capture that phone audio, um, it can be quite tricky um, when, you know, you've got one chance and uh, and that's that. So. Um, please forgive that, and I, I hope that you understand why that that exists. <laughs> um, so there we go. Um, I, I'm actually pre-recording these intros um, before I go on holiday so I can be prepared. So I'm not 100% sure who I'm going to have on next week. Um, I have a few guests lined up um, for the week I am returning, um, but I'm not sure which of those uh, will be recorded first um, and then which one will uh, be coming out first. So I'm going to leave you um hanging on that one um and uh yes uh and i've got no other news so if uh, you want to contact me as usual you can contact me at joe at all you need is drums.com uh and you can look at my website all you need is drums.com there's stuff on there for um the isolated drums that i send out um there's also a full archive of the isolated drums and you can uh, see uh, some information about the sessions and stuff i do um there um I want to say a big thank you to um, Joe Kane for the amazing uh, intro and outro music he supplies for this podcast and uh, the artwork that my good friend David Henshaw also supplies. Um, And that's that. So I will speak to you in a couple of weeks. Um, So have a good one and see you soon. Goodbye. (laughs) 